Happy New Year. Thank you, Josh, musicians. Um, sorry for the turmoil over here. Um, Ava fainted, and thankfully the Lord has brought uh, remarkable people in the field of medicine to our body, and they're caring for her, and I think she's going to be okay. So even as you hear <laughs> the word preached this morning, uh, we can pray for Ava as well. Uh, but thank you for your understanding. It's good to be back with you. Um, Aaron served uh, this pulpit so faithfully last week, and, but it's yet it's good to be back with you. I've, I was having to get my vacation time out, or you lose it. Use it or lose it. But it's certainly a blessing to be back with my Lakeview family. We're in John 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 28. John 1, verses 19 to 28. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Fathers, we begin this new year, 2022. We are reminded at the beginning of every year how quickly life goes how brief our lives are. We pray that we would steward this year as faithful citizens of your kingdom. And we pray for this preaching moment that you would give us life according to your word, that you would revive our souls, make wise the simple, and enlighten our eyes that we may behold the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all his glory. We ask these things in the matchless name of our Savior. Amen. The heartbeat of the four Gospels, the heartbeat of the New Testament, for that matter, and the ministry of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the glory of God through the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's 
establishing his saving reign, his authority, and his presence over a broken world through his Messiah, the Davidic King, Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom is the Lord's plan, his strategy to fix this sin-cursed world and make everything new. That's his plan. That's his strategy. C.S. Lewis picked up this theme in his work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, The world of Narnia is suffering under the curse of the terrible white witch. It's always winter, but it's never Christmas. But once Aslan, who is the rightful king of, of Narnia, returns to his world, everything begins to change. Aslan is on the move. And then Father Christmas arrives handing out presents and wishing everyone Merry Christmas, the long winter of Narnia is coming to an end. The snow begins to melt. The flowers begin to bloom. And the signs of spring appear preaching a message. Uh, The signs of spring appear announcing that the king is returning to restore the world. In a very real sense, that was the ministry of John the Baptist. He came to announce the king is coming. Now, that was communicated in his prologue, uh, the prologue being the first 18 verses of John. Uh, John begins with an announcement of new creation. We saw this in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's the creation language of Genesis 1. And then we saw in verses 4 and 5, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and in the darkness has not overcome it. And then for those who receive him, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We lost our sonship in the fall. We became spiritual orphans, and now... Through this work of new creation, we are made, given the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But it's clear here that though this salvation would be accomplished by the Word of God, the Son of God, to prepare the way for him would be his messenger, John the Baptist, Or as we read this morning in Isaiah 40, a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, This voice, as he's described in Isaiah 40, must introduce the word to break the 400 years of silence. The last word was from Malachi. There's been 400 years of silence from God because of his judgment on Judah and Israel. Indeed, Luke says that when John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, who was a priest, his his muteness, his his, uh, inability to speak was shattered, which represented what God was about to do with those 400 years of silence 
by this voice from the wilderness. And we see that being fleshed out in our passage today. Now, an important point before we get into our passage. Um, As we know, uh, Genesis 1 uh, presents the creation in seven days. And we take that to be a six literal days of creation. And then the seventh day is the day of Sabbath rest. And we have seen that John has begun his gospel with his reliance on Genesis 1. Well, starting here in verse 18 and taking us all the way through chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, John presents the coming of Christ in seven days. It's quite remarkable. But suffice to say, we'll see that import, the importance of that when we get to chapter 2. So we'll wait on that. But day 1, we see beginning in verse 19. And so this day 1 centers on the identity of his forerunner. His, the identity of this voice from the wilderness who is preparing the way for the Son of God. And for day one, John the evangelist has already given us the outline for our sermon. Look in verse 8 of chapter 1. The outline is, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John made it easy for me as I was writing out this sermon. Indeed, the first point we see here is that the voice was not the light. Look with me in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, I want you to note firstly that John the Baptist witnessed to this group. And essentially, he's caught the attention, as we see in the text, from the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day among the Jews. He's caught their attention because of his life and because of his ministry. In fact, this is mainly how witness opportunities come. Uh, Certainly there's a place for uh, uh, cold calling, a a, a potential uh, hearer of the gospel. You you go up to someone you don't know and, and you share the gospel with them and there is a place for that and you certainly can see that in the New Testament. But most of our opportunities arise uh, through relationships and where people begin to see there's something different about you. And I would submit to you that if those opportunities don't come, maybe the unbeliever uh, doesn't see anything different in you, which is a sobering thought. John the Baptist holy life and his fervency for the kingdom of God opened this door. Indeed, later uh, in Mark chapter 6, it says that King Herod feared John knowing that he was a holy and righteous man. And so that was his reputation. His holiness and his righteousness had provided this opportunity because they were taking note and it caused them concern. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of it this way with regard to our character being a forerunner to our opportunities to witness. The first great step in evangelizing is that we start with ourselves and become sanctified. 
When the man of the world sees that you and I have got something that he obviously has not got, he will begin to take notice. He will say, that man has got something. And he will begin to inquire as to what it is. One of my favorite anecdotes concerning the impact of a godly life on providing opportunities uh, for evangelism and witness uh, comes from J.C. Ryle, who, who tells the story of, a, of an elderly lady who claimed that she was converted to Christ primarily because of the ministry of George Whitfield. Now, this confused a lot of people because uh, George Whitfield's ministry took place when she was a really young girl. And, and many were suspicious at the idea that she could have been impacted by his ministry at such a young of age. But here's what she said. She said that when she was a little girl, Whitfield stayed at her house. It was not any sermon he preached. It was not anything he ever said to me. It was the beautiful consistency and kindness of his daily life. I said to myself, if I ever have any religion, Mr. Whitfield's God shall be my God. And that is a word for us as we begin this new year. Um, Our greatest witness opportunities come just by being God's man and God's woman in our place of influence. Now, with that said, John the Baptist, who who certainly had that same impact that Whitfield had had, uh, is doing more than just witnessing here. He's exposing the ignorance of the religious leaders. And keep in mind, when we read about the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders, they represent the people as a whole. And and so there is a spiritual blindness on the Jewish people because of self-righteousness. And this ignorance was seen in their approach to baptism. Now, the baptism we read about here or talk about here is not the baptism of the new covenant. It's a different form of baptism. But this had arisen... uh, uh, with the Jews during the time of the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments. And this baptism was only applied to Gentiles uh, who were proselytes, who who converted to Judaism. Uh, It was only applied to them because they were the ones that were seen as unclean. And so they needed to go through a a cleansing ritual, a, a, a spiritual bath, if you will, in order to be welcomed into the new, uh, this, this covenant community. Not the new covenant, but the, uh, the old covenant community. But, but John the Baptist was directing his calls for repentance, not just to the Gentiles. He was directing his calls to the religious Jews, who thought that their biggest problem was outside of them, Rome, and not inside of them, their sin. Uh, That is the natural way of things. The natural man perceives that his or her biggest problem is outside of them. If, if, If I wasn't in this situation, I wouldn't act this way. I wouldn't say the things I say. If it wasn't for the people around me, I wouldn't do this. 
that's the natural man's way of, of diagnosing their issue. But John the Baptist agreed with, would have agreed with Teddy Roosevelt, who once said, if you kicked um, the, the, in the seat the person who caused you the biggest problem, you wouldn't be able to walk for a month. <laughs> we are our biggest problem. The person in the mirror. And, and John the Baptist was saying, the Son of God is coming on the scene, but you are not ready. You are too self-righteous. You don't perceive your need for a Savior. You think God will honor your self-righteousness in the day of judgment. Little had changed spiritually since their exile into Babylon and their return from exile. Judah could not believe that they were in danger of judgment. They had the temple as their lucky charm. And John the Baptist was saying, Israel, not just the Gentiles are unclean. You're spiritually still in exile. You may live in Jerusalem, but you're spiritually in exile. And so he was calling the Jews and the Gentiles to submit to a ritual of cleansing that up to that moment had only been administered to the Gentiles. Now, he wasn't in, in any idea, uh, way saying that the baptism cleansed them. It represented, it symbolized their cleansing through repentance. And this is what has caught the attention of the Pharisees, the religious authorities. We can only imagine how irked they were at John the Baptist. He was calling, he had the audacity to be calling the children of Abraham to repentance. He was placing them on the same level as the dirty Gentiles. Well, they come to him, and notice in verse 20, and this is interesting language, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, the wording here is interesting. And the wording here is for emphasis. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Um, and I think this is so important here for every one of us, every believer here. Because even as those been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we still have the remnants of that old man that rears its head. And it's so easy for us to make it about us rather than Christ. But when we make it about us rather than Christ, several things can happen and none of them are good. First of all, and we see this with preachers, but we also see it at the one-on-one -on -one level. And I'm guilt I have been guilty of some of these. We may water down the truths of God's word as to not offend. I've been in family situations where I was just more concerned with peace in the family, which is a pseudo peace, because peace 
is rooted in the gospel, real peace. But I've been in family situations. I've been in situations with old classmates and, te- and teammates where I-, I watered down the truth as to not to offend. And in that case, I've made it about me rather than Christ. Or we may remain silent so as not to lose favor. What kind of favor do you have when you can lose it that easily for being honest and true? That's not real favor. But we tend to do that, don't we? Or we may, and there are churches that have abounded that are guilty of this. God forbid it ever happens here. We may manipulate the message so as to gain favor, so as to perhaps attract numbers and to grow numerically, uh, to fit our secular audience, make a name for ourselves. Or we may remain faithful, but seek credit for what only God can do and has done. I see that oftentimes. I see the impulse in my own heart. But I see it on Twitter uh, where God is doing something remarkably in a church and the pastor of that church just tweets all the great things that are happening and then he closes, Sole Deo Gloria. And maybe that person's motives are pure, but it exposes, when I read that, sin in my own heart, how easy it is to to want to take credit for what God alone can do. God forbid we do that. Or we may remain faithful, but we take it personally when people don't respond the way we want them to. This has happened to me uh, as a pastor where you, you preach your guts out and then someone comes up to you and says, what about that ball game? And you go, did you just hear what I said? I love talking about the ball game. Let's just talk about it later. Um, or you evangelize someone and they, they don't respond or, or, or they scoff at what you say. And you, you take it personally. You've made it about you. Or you remain faithful to the message, but you get jealous if a person or ministry down the street is more fruitful than you. God forbid. We pray we want revival. What if the revival happens down the street? Will we be grateful then? Those are all evidences and consequences of making it about us. Well, that's not John the Baptist. In fact, we'll read in chapter 3, verse 30, where he says, I must decrease, he must increase. May that be our, our spirit. May that be our heart's cry in 2022. Well, notice in verse 21, they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Now, where does that question come from? Well, it comes from the last writing prophet 
in the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of that last book of the Old Testament. In Malachi 4, the prophecy is this. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they were waiting for Elijah. In other words, one of the last divine promises before the 400 years of silence was broken was that that day would come, the day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, preceded by Elijah. But there seems to have been an expectation of a literal return of Elijah. Indeed, many scholars believe that they were looking for a reincarnation of Elijah. Uh, Matthew 17, verse 10, seems to indicate that. And, and just like they had misinterpreted the scriptures concerning the kind of Messiah they needed, they perceived that because their biggest problem was Rome, they needed a Messiah who would deliver them from Rome. See, if you misdiagnose your condition, you're going to take the wrong medicine, right? Well, just like they had misdiagnosed the kind of Messiah they needed, they had also misinterpreted the kind of Elijah who would come. And that's why John the Baptist says in the second part of 21, I am not. Now, that can be confusing because Matthew, Mark, and Luke report that Jesus identified John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this prophecy of Elijah. So what gives? Is there a contradiction? Of course not. Again, because they had misinterpreted the kind of Elijah who would come, John the Baptist recognizes that, and so he does not identify with their version of Elijah. If he is not the Messiah, though, and he's not the Elijah... Uh, the, the delegation here is going to try another possibility. The third part of verse 21, they said, well, are you the prophet? Again, this is not an arbitrary question. Uh, one of the earliest and greatest prophecies about Messiah to come was found in Deuteronomy 18, the first uh, uh, section of the Bible, the Torah, the law. Where Moses writes this, God says in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So there was this longing and expectation of, of a prophet. And so for centuries, the, the Jews had been waiting for this prophet ever since uh, this had been penned. Of course, all you have to do is read the prophets to know uh, how the self-righteous, religious people responded to the prophets. Uh, they were harsh on the prophets, uh, to say the least. They didn't like their message because the prophets were preaching the truth to them. They, they wanted affirmation. They didn't want rebuke like many people today. Uh, they were like Israel's king in, in 1 Kings 22 uh, who, who kind of had their perspective. He, he hated the prophet Micaiah because, listen, he never prophesied good concerning me. 
but evil. And again, he represented the people. Uh, he never uh, prophesies anything good to me. He only prophesies ne negative things. Indeed, the prophets rebuked these religious people, the most religious people in the world, mind you, of their sin. The prophets warned them of coming judgment. All of them did. Judgment's coming. And they also reminded them of their need for a Christ, a Messiah, who would come as well. Of course, the last day's prophet prophesied in Deuteronomy would be the Messiah. And John the Baptist knew that. And notice, he answered, no, I am not the prophet. In verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So they've looked for his identity um, in Malachi and in Deuteronomy. But John the Baptist is going to take them to another book, the book of Isaiah. That brings us to the second part of this passage. The voice bears witness about the light. Look with me in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Why is he in the wilderness? It represents that they are still in exile spiritually. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He is quoting and applying the passage we read this morning. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now, here's why this is so important. All four Gospels pick this prophecy up and place them at, towards the beginning of their Gospels. That tells us this prophecy is so very important. This is one of the burdens of the Gospel writers. What's going on in Isaiah 40? Well, remember, there weren't chapter divisions when Isaiah wrote it. We added the chapter divisions later. And, and so in chapter 39, which was not chapter 39 for Isaiah, just before this prophecy, here's what is said to Judah. You are going to go in exile. And in verse 6 of chapter 39, all that is in your house... And that which your fathers have stored up shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Exile represented judgment. It represented alienation from Yahweh. The temple was destroyed and there was no king. They are in a hopeless state. Separation and death. Exile is the ugliest form of judgment you can see this side of hell that was the context for this glorious prophecy but out of nowhere it's like we're asleep and and you wake up and you're in exile before you go to sleep and you wake up and you hear these glorious words comfort comfort my people says your god 
Now, that can only encourage you if you understand your state. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That is, they've done nothing to secure the ending of their warfare. But iniquity has been pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Atonement has been made. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now what's interesting, that name Lord is the name Yahweh. So the, when you have these cults who want to say, well, uh, the New Testament never affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, here, in all four Gospels, Isaiah 40 is being quoted and applied to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40 speaks about the Yahweh, the Lord, who is to come. And he says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So Isaiah 40 exhorts those who are in exile. Of course, as John the Baptist is preaching, they're no longer in physical exile, but they're in spiritual exile because of a lack of repentance and faith to make appropriate preparation for the time when all flesh will meet the Lord. In other words, build the king's highway. Now, this is not to be taken uh, in a literal way because um, no physical obstacle could hinder the way of the Lord. Uh, scholars, virtually all scholars in interpreting Isaiah 40, tell us that Isaiah is calling the people to repentance. It is through repentance they are prepared to meet the Lord. And so we do this by removing sinful obstacles blocking the Lord's way and work in our life. Now we recognize that even repentance is a grace, but we do have responsibility, don't we? So what does repentance look like as we prepare the way for the Lord? Well, I love the definition that the Baptist Catechism gives us, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, repentance is a work of God's free grace whereby um, he, um, out of a, the sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin and, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ does with grief and hatred over his or her sin turn from it to God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That is the mark of a Christian. That is the mark of a believer. The vital signs of the new birth is repentance. Now, we never repent perfectly. That's why uh, Martin Luther said we need to repent of our repentance. Even our repentance needs the blood and the righteousness of Christ to cover it. But as we grow in grace, we grow in repentance. It's the mark of the believer. A, a man or woman who refuses to repent in an area of his or her life does not have the assurance of salvation. Because one of the marks of assurance is the fruit of repentance. I love what Thomas Watson, uh, the great Puritan, 
how he describes what he calls the nature of true repentance. Um, he gives six ingredients of true repentance. I think this is helpful for us. First of all, the sight of sin. In other words, sin must first be seen in our lives before it can be wept for. And by the way, that is why the Lord will place you in circumstances and around people, problem people at times, to expose your sin. Those circumstances and, and those people don't cause your sin. They expose your sin. Because sin which is not known can't be mourned over. Sin that's not mourned over can't be repented of. Uh, how many times have you heard someone say, or maybe you've said this, well, I'm not perfect, but... What they're about to say is, I know I'm not perfect, but when it comes to this, I am. And so, sight of sin. Secondly, sorrow over sin. Now, that's a miracle. Uh, the kind of biblical sorrow that we see in Scripture. Um, let me give you a couple of terms. There's a distinction. Uh, in fact, it's two different religions. Uh, contrition and attrition. Contrition is godly sorrow. It is a miracle to have godly sorrow. When you sin, that you respond like David against you and you only have I sinned. Your greatest grief is that you've grieved the Lord. That's contrition. But then there's attrition. That's worldly sorrow. That, that's, the, that's the sorrow of the natural person. Who is more sorrowful that they got caught. They're more sorrowful that they got busted, they're more sorrowful over the consequences of their sin than the one that they sinned against. Third, confession of sin. How many times have you had, heard someone say, um, I, I, I made a mistake, I sinned, but that's not confession. Confession is you're not looking for any other excuses. You're not rationalizing your behavior. You confess it, whether it's to God or to your spouse or to your brothers and sisters in Christ or your neighbors. Fourth, shame of sin. All sin makes us guilty, and that guilt can only be removed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. There should be a holy shame over our sin. Uh, the prophet said, Jeremiah said to the people of God, you, you don't even know how to blush. You can get to the point where you don't even blush over your sin. It's a dangerous place. Uh, we, have, we have people in our churches who regularly visit porn sites. That evidence is you, you don't even know how to blush. Fifth, hatred of sin. Jesus isn't loved Till sin is loathed. And that is so important for us. There is no concept of longing and loving our Savior until we hate our sin. So if you don't hate your sin, cry out to God. And he will give you a hatred over your sin. And in six, turning from sin. Repentance means, it means little if it doesn't result in reformation. Turning from your sin. It's a daily act by God's grace. 
But just like many religious people who hear the message of repentance but deflect it, note how these religious people seem to either have missed the point because the point of Isaiah 40 is the messenger is coming or has come and Messiah is coming and you need to be ready with repentant hearts. They're deflecting that. Notice in verse 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? It's like they didn't even hear what he said about Isaiah 40. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. This is so sobering. He sees how they respond to Isaiah 40, which any religious Jew would have known. He is saying Messiah is in your midst. And he is one, notice, you do not know. That is horrifying language. Verse 26, among you stands one you do not know. And I believe these words are a prophetic description of the state of things when Jesus walked among them in his earthly ministry, but it's also the state of things up until today. Think about this. The gospel is proclaimed all over the world. That's why uh, we participate in Lottie Moon. By the way, did you say? We're at $303,000. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. That, that is God's grace, God's mercy, but I am grateful to you. You, you are a people who give sacrificially to reach the nations with the gospel. And that gospel is being presented all over the world, even today, one-on-one and even in corp, corporate worship settings. And yet, oftentimes when Jesus is preached, and, and when Jesus is preached and the gospel is preached, know that he is in our midst. He is always present where the gospel is faithfully preached, yet many neither have eye to see him nor ear to hear him or hearts to love him. They were just like these religious leaders. And the kingdom of God is closed to such ones. Salvation is within reach. Grace and mercy and and hope and peace. Abundant life, eternal life. The kingdom of God is within reach. And yet Jesus remains one they do not know. Do you know that Christ disregarded time and time again over time will soon be Christ withdrawn don't take that for granted one of the most dangerous things you can do is sit under gospel preaching week in and week out and not respond in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ J.C. Ryle says, it will be better at the last day never to have been born than to have had Christ standing among us and not to have known him. That was the state of these religious leaders who again represented the religious people. 
And John the Baptist wanted nothing more than for them to know his Christ. In fact, that's his mention here of the, of the sandals. Um, the strap of the sandals that he's not worthy to untie. Um, a disciple in that day of a rabbi would not only sit under the rabbi's teaching, he would serve the rabbi and meet the rabbi's needs. But there's one thing that not even a, a disciple would do or had no, who had not, not the responsibility to do. He did not have the responsibility to clean the shoes, the sandals, or the feet of the rabbi. That, that was a disgusting uh, responsibility. That was left to the slaves, the bond slaves to do. And the disciples did not have that responsibility. And John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy um, to untie the straps of his sandal. He's saying, what he's saying here is, don't look at me. I'm lower than a bond slave. You look at him. And yet, as we come to this final verse here, it's very apparent that the gospel that he preached, where he caused them to look to Jesus Christ, was not received automatically. But there's a very important point, an encouraging point I want us to see as we close. And it's found in verse 28, or it's implied in verse 28. He says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, why is that important? Because John is assuming you're going to read John 10 pretty soon. And in John chapter 10, it says in verse 42, he went away again to the Jordan, across the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing at first. So John, Jesus takes his disciples back to this very place where John had been baptizing, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Do you see the point? John didn't see immediate fruit, but he was planting the seeds like a farmer. And later, Jesus brings his disciples to that very place, and they remember the words of John the Baptist, and many believed in him there. And we're just like John the Baptist. We're just farmers who are planting the seed. And I'm convinced that the reason many of us don't evangelize as faithfully as we should is that ultimately we don't believe that it's going to matter. But it does. Plant the seed. Water the seed. God is doing something beautiful and glorious with that gospel seed. I want to close with this, one of my favorite stories concerning this. There was a man named Luke Short who sat under the preaching of John Flavel, the Puritan, his childhood. And the last time he ever went, he was 15 years old, he had resisted that gospel. But he heard John Flavel preach the gospel. He understood it. He just didn't respond to it in repentance and faith. Flash forward 85 years. At the age of 100, Luke Short is sitting under a tree. And he's lamenting his wasted life. His wasted years. And he remembers back to the gospel John Flavel 
had so faithfully preached when he was a young boy. And he was converted to Jesus Christ under that tree. The farmer planted the seed and he reaped 85 years later. Why? Because Aslan is on the move. The winter of Narnia is at an end. Spring is coming. And that's what we're seeing in the unfolding of this gospel. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to behold this Christ and have this gospel warm our hearts, awaken us from our dullness and our boredom as we begin 2022. But it's also a message to those who do not yet believe. You're in the same position as these religious leaders. Just because they're religious did not mean they were right with God. They needed to repent of their sins, and they needed to trust in God's only provision for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as our musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond at the beginning of 2022. What better time to do it? In repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, the one that John the Baptist prepares us for. So as we stand, let us sing in response to this word from the Gospel of John. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.